Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 119 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla, how are you? Can't you tell? You're in a, you're in a dark, dark place. <laughs> Can't you tell just by looking at me and listening to me that I am in the best state I have ever been in? Like, I don't think it gets any better than this. Um, so uh, I spent all of last week working and working on the homegrown steering committee. And it was so much fun. Like, and that's not sarcasm. It's hard to tell with my voice being the way it is. But yeah, it, was. it sounded pretty sarcastic. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. But I think now that the festival is over, my body is revolting. Yep, that's, uh, that's what happens. Because I have a sore throat and a stuffy nose and just generally foggy-headedness. No fever, so that's good. That's good. Um, but And yes, and I'm recording from inside of a closet because <laughs> we had to move things around and record remotely. So Sean has D&D upstairs, and so I have to record on a separate floor than him so we don't hear each other. So I'm inside yep. my closet now. I swore I'd never go back. I'm so sorry for putting you back in the closet. How dare you? <laughs> how are you? I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm scared to ask, how are you? Um, well, the reason why Kayla's back in the closet on my account is because I got COVID. I don't even think I got it from homegrown. I started to not feel great on Tuesday, so I only got to go out two nights. And I was just down for the count. And I'm like, I'm not going to go out because I don't feel well in case it is COVID. I don't want to spread it. So good for me for being a responsible human. Hell yeah. But that... That meant that, like, on Tuesday, I didn't feel super great. I went out, but I didn't go out on Wednesday. Tested negative. Didn't go out on Thursday. And I'm like, I'm just, I just am going to rest with the hopes that I can go out on Friday and Saturday. And then I tested positive on Friday. Oof, oofta, oofta. But I did take another test this morning. And the little line, super faint. So it's basically gone. Oh. I'm happy it's basically gone. I'm sorry it happened during the worst week of the year for it to happen. You know what, though? Like, all the bands that I really wanted to see during Homegrown, I'll be able to see throughout the year. But on Friday, is I'm on the list for Billy Idol. So I will be okay by Friday based upon this timeline. That's so good. I guess in that, I guess in that, like, maybe the universe was like, oh, you can't do Homegrown. However... Uh, you do get to go see Billy Idol. Yep, Yay. that's awesome. So, yeah. Well, what I was thinking is we could just, you know, I'm sorry, my brain is so foggy. We could crack on into it. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we got an ad for y'all. I can't open a can because I'm in a closet. <laughs> Why was that so funny? I also have COVID. I have COVID brain, so I'm also really out of it. This is going to be a weird episode. Um, I thought just... I grabbed a Coke can. Did I not grab a can of Coca-Cola? I'm All cracking right. it. 
excellent. Those are the bubbles. <laughs> and we're back. All right. So when we discussed this last week, uh, and by last week I meant last night, I told you I was going cursed object. Yes. And I went very like very classic cursed object here. Okay. So at this point, pretty much everybody has heard of the movie Annabelle, right? Yes. The I think it's sp- on Netflix. Yeah, the spin-off slash prequel to The Conjuring. Other than in the opening scene, it doesn't feature any of the human characters from The Conjuring. It focuses on the backstory of the doll that was in the possession of paranormal researchers Ed and Lorraine Warren in The Conjuring movie. The story includes an explanation of how a demon became attached to the doll, and the movie itself was popular enough that it got another prequel called Annabelle Creation, which like explains the doll's backstory further. And as I know, we have a few listeners who we are their only source for, you know, paranormal information. I'm going to share something that y'all may not know. Annabelle is based on a real doll. Mm Mm-hmm. She is. Now, the real Annabelle doesn't look like that creepy movie version. Like, the movie version looks like something out of a Goosebumps book. Yes. Very, very scary. I don't like it. Yeah. The real Annabelle is somehow creepier in its Uh true form of a Raggedy Ann doll, like just a classic Raggedy Ann. Red triangle nose, black button eyes, red yarn hair, and it's freaky. Well, my sister had one of those, I'm pretty sure, so... I feel like lots of people did, you know? It was pretty classic Yeah, if you were an 80s, 90s baby, yeah, for sure. So... The real Annabelle doll was given as a birthday present by a mother to her daughter, and the mother purchased the Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store in 1970. According to History vs. Hollywood, given the style of the real doll, and it's the calico dress style it's wearing, it was most likely purchased new, since that particular Raggedy Ann doll did not predate the 1970s. Okay. Um, Most of the Annabelle movies focus on the vintage doll's existence prior to the mom purchasing it, giving, like, a reason for why it's possessed. But if you look at the real story of the doll, that's not the case. And this Raggedy Ann is no ordinary doll. According to the real-life paranormal investigators, the late Ed and Lorraine Warren, it is inhabited by an inhuman spirit. Since her first supposed haunting in 1970... This allegedly evil doll has been blamed for demonic possession, a slew of violent attacks, and at least two near-death experiences. First, a bit on the Warrens, because I don't think we've talked about them much in the past. I think their name has come up, but I don't think we've really discussed them. No, that actually would be a really good topic for a future episode, just do the Warrens. Yep, and honestly, they have a lot of cases we could talk about, too. Yeah. Um, The Warrens had investigated more than 10,000 cases of paranormal activity in their lifetime. After the passing of her husband, Ed, Lorraine was known to go about and do presentations on their various cases. Annabelle was a pretty popular topic. According to the New Haven Register, back in October of 2014, Lorraine presented a talk and slideshow of cases at a Catholic girls' high school with the help of her son-in-law, Tony Spira, who is also a paranormal investigator. Ed kind of took Tony under his wing 
and was like, mm-hmm. basically, like, you are my Jedi Padawan thingy, you know? You did the family business. <laughs> At the time of that talk, Lorraine was 87, soft-spoken, and the crowd said she was very sweet to all of those who engaged her in conversation at the meet-and-greet. Warren began by telling the audience that ever since the age of seven or eight, she saw lights or auras around people, but was afraid to tell her parents for fear they thought she was crazy. She spent many Mm. years praying about it because she didn't want to be different. And she was a devout Catholic her whole life. She was actually known for saying that during their paranormal investigations— she felt like her um, religious conviction was a tool. Like it was what kept her safe amongst all these dangerous things her and Ed were doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ed was a self-taught demonologist, an interest he developed after growing up in a house that he said was haunted. And when he and Lorraine met when they were 16, um, Lorraine didn't tell him about her talents at first, but he figured it out on his own and like was like, hey, that's really fucking cool that you do this. We should hang out because we can do something with this girl. Yep. Uh, they would pool their talents and go on to become a world famous couple of paranormal investigators. And Lorraine's career spanned over 65 years. If you could ask Ed and Lorraine Warren, though Ed died in 2006 and... Lorraine died in early 2019, they would tell you that the stark warnings scrawled across Annabelle's glass case are more than necessary and that it is one of the most demonic things they've encountered. The string of demonic activities that have lasted some 50 years begins with the first of these infamous hauntings when Annabelle was brand new. The story was told by the Warrens by two young women and was retold for years by the Warrens themselves at these presentations and such. Mm -hmm. As the story goes, the Annabelle doll had been a gift to a young nurse named Donna, or some cases say Deidre, but most of them say Donna, from her mother for her 28th birthday. Donna was thrilled about the gift, thought it was adorable, and brought it back to her apartment that she shared with another young nurse named Angie. At first, the doll was just a cute around-the-house accessory, sitting on the sofa in the living room and greeting visitors with her colorful, you know, outfit and cute little hair and face. Mm -hmm. But before long, the two women began to notice that Annabelle seemed to move around the room of her own accord. Donna would sit her in the living room on the sofa before leaving for work, only to come home in the afternoon and find her in the bedroom with the door shut. Donna and Angie then started finding notes left through the apartment reading, Help me. According to the women, the notes were written on parchment paper, which was not a type of paper they kept in their home. It's even worse. That's even worse. Okay. One morning, while the nurses were eating at their breakfast nook, Annabelle's two flimsy cloth arms levitated onto the table. And when the paranormal activity took place right in front of their faces... The nurses, instead of freaking out, were, like, weirdly fascinated by it. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, it was the 70s. They didn't watch as many horror movies as we have watched. Very true. Um, so, furthermore, Angie's boyfriend, uh, in this case, there's, he's known as Lou, was in the apartment one afternoon while Donna was out and heard rustling in her room as if someone had broken in. 
Upon inspection, he found no sign of forced entry, but found the Annabelle doll lying face down on the ground. Ew. Another version of the story says he was attacked upon waking up from a nap. I'll get to that in a minute. So the women, after seeing all this activity and then hearing from Lou, decide to invite a medium over to help solve their weird paranormal problem. Some say it was before Lou's experience. Some say it was after. One of the nurses deduced that the doll's actions meant they were trying to communicate with the roommates, so they wanted this medium to come in for advice. The psychic took no time in coming to the nurse's aid and quickly held a seance. While hosting the ritual, the psychic reported that she was sensing the spirit of a young girl about six or seven years old named Annabelle Higgins, whose body had been found years earlier on the site where their apartment building had been built. The psychic went on to imply that the child was killed outside of the apartment complex in a car accident. Quote, her name is Annabelle and she's in that doll, unquote, the psychic said. And that's how Annabelle got her name. Isn't that uh, like the openings? Is it? The Conjuring that that's the opening scene of? I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've watched those movies. I okay. should rewatch them. I know that it's the opening scene of one of those movies, and I don't think it's the actual Annabelle movie. That would track. That would track. Because they went, like, off the rails with the Annabelle stories. The medium claimed that the spirit was benevolent and simply wanted to be loved and cared for, and the two young nurses felt bad for the spirit, so they consented to allow her to take up permanent residence in the doll and this is where the waking up from the nap version of the story happened so they'd been taking care of the doll like it was a little girl like treating it like it was a human yeah after processing what they had heard the nurses believed that a human spirit was occupying the doll and began to hang out with her and for a little while everything was fine until one night lou the fiancé of one of the nurses was sleeping on the couch with Annabelle apparently seated on the opposite end. That night, Lou woke up from a nap, startled and sweaty. One of the nurses asked him what was wrong, to which he responded, I just had the craziest nightmare. I had a dream that the doll was crawling up my leg and trying to get to my neck and trying to strangle me to death. Oh my god. So reacting from this creepy-ass nightmare, Lou picked up Annabelle and chucked her onto the apartment floor. Lou belittled the doll, shouting that she's nothing more than an Raggedy Ann doll. She can't hurt anybody. Like, kind of trying to talk himself out of this freaky nightmare. That seems like a display of toxic masculinity if I've ever seen one, but okay. (laughs) Yep, yep. As soon as Lou launched the doll, he is said to have provoked the demonic presence attached to it, causing seven psychic wounds to appear on his body, four slash marks on his chest, and three on his stomach. His wounds cropped up like claw marks or scalpel incisions in his flesh, and the attack on Lou was indicative that the spirit tied to the doll was far more than just a six-year-old creepy little girl. Yeah. Eventually, in an attempt to rid their home of the Annabelle doll's spirit, Donna and Angie called on an Episcopal priest known as Father Hegan, and Hegan contacted his superior, Father Cook, who knew Ed and Lorraine Lauren, so he contacted the Warrens. Okay. As far as Ed and Lorraine were concerned, the two young ladies' trouble truly started when they began believing that the doll deserved their sympathy. The Warrens believed that there was actually a demonic force in search of a human host within Annabelle, not a benevolent soul. Um, This is from directly from their case file. Yeah. Spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. 
An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or an object, and this is what occurred in Annabelle's case. This spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. So I think it's really interesting that the Warrens point out that a human spirit can't possess a like inanimate object. Right. Because by that theory, that would mean the other possessed objects we've talked about, like Robert the doll, has to be a demon or another inhuman spirit, not a person. I mean, I kind of got that vibe from Robert the doll anyway. Yeah, but I I remember thinking it felt very much like possibly a person or like, you know, Robert's owner's spirit. I remember that part because he just loved it so much. It's 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 creepy. It's a creepy thought that only inhuman things can possess inanimate objects. And then it's extra creepy that they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to manipulate you into letting me like basically saying that they it, the, the doll was trying to get them to treat it's so nice that eventually it could just take one of them over. Yeah, that it would just latch onto them. It like wants to yep. wear down Ooh. those barriers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know we make fun of Mr. Baggins a lot, but uh, it wasn't a oh, little we'll girl. Get there. It really was a demon. Oh. Yeah, we'll, oh, we'll get to Baggins. Immediately, the Warrens noted that what they believe were signs of demonic possession, including teleportation, a.k.a. the doll moving on its own, materialization, the paper parchment notes, and the mark of the beast, which is what they referred to as the clawed chest of Lou. Okay. The Warrens subsequently ordered an exorcism of the apartment to be formed by Father Cook. They took Annabelle out of the apartment and to her final resting place in their occult museum in the hopes that her demonic reign would finally end. Following Annabelle's removal from Donna and Angie's apartment, the Warrens documented several other paranormal experiences involving the doll, and the first one was actually right after they took her. After the exorcism in the nurse's apartment, the Warrens buckled Annabelle into the backseat of their car and vowed not to take the highway in case she had some evil intentions that might cause an accident or something like that. So they took safer back roads, And that still turned out to be risky because on their way home, Lorraine claims that the brakes either stalled or failed several times, resulting in almost crashes. Lorraine claimed that as soon as Ed pulled holy water from his bag and doused the doll with it, the problems with the brakes disappeared. Bad doll. Bad. It's just like the the doll equivalent, the possessed doll equivalent of like a spray bottle in your cat on your counter. (laughs) Upon arriving home, Ed and Lorraine placed the doll in Ed's study. There, they reported that the doll levitated and moved about the house, even when placed in the locked office in an outer building. The Warrens claimed that she would turn up later inside the house. Ew. Finally, the Warrens decided to lock Annabelle up for good. And there she still sits, in a box inscribed with prayers. For the rest of his life, so this was from the 70s to 2006 when he passed away, Ed would periodically say a binding prayer over the case, attempting to ensure that the spirit and the doll remained good and trapped forever. Okay, but then what happened after he died? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Well, also, keep in mind that after he died, Lorraine still lived for another 13 years, and they had trained Tony Spira. Oh. So I don't think we really have to worry about that. Right, The Apprentice. Like, I... Yeah. 
Since being locked up, Annabelle the doll hasn't moved again, though it is alleged that her spirit has found ways to reach the earthly plane. Once, a priest who was visiting the Warrens Museum picked up Annabelle and discounted her demonic abilities. Ed warned the priest about mocking Annabelle's demonic power, but the young priest laughed it off, but on his way home, the priest was involved in a near-fatal car crash, and it totaled his new car. He claimed to have seen Annabelle in his rearview mirror just before the accident. I really don't understand people who do stuff like that. Like, you can go ahead and not believe, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Why do you got to make such a big show about not believing? Like, just be like, oh, cool, I don't believe in that. Meh. Years later, another visitor to the museum tapped on the glass of the Annabelle doll's case and laughed at how silly people were to believe in her. On his way home, he reportedly lost control of his motorcycle and crashed into a tree. He had passed away and his girlfriend, who was on the back of the motorcycle, barely survived. Oh, no. She claimed that at the time of the accident, the couple had been laughing about the Annabelle doll. It's just, it's just not smart. It's just not smart. Over the years, the Warrens continued to recount these tales as proof of Annabelle the doll's horrific powers, though none of the stories could be 100% verified. Obviously, it's all personal stories. The names of the young priest and the motorcyclist were not divulged. Neither were Donna or Angie's real names uh, or Lou's real name. Basically, mm-hmm. what it sounds like is they were trying to verify that these people were real, but Ed and Lorraine were not giving the f- real names, and it sounds like maybe the idea was they were trying to protect their privacy, but some people are taking it as they're making it up. Have you have you done or listened to any, have you done the research or listened to any podcasts about that like deep dive into Ed and Lorraine Warren? A few of them. Okay. I know that there's big controversy about them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, for the sake of this, I was just talking about the doll, so I figured, you know. Oh, no, no, no. That's, it's good. I mean, it's a huge part of her story. Yeah. Um, so it would appear that all we have, as I said, is the Warren's word to go on that any of this took place. Though Ed and Lorraine have both died, their legacy is carried on by their daughter Judy and her husband, Tony Spira. Until his death in 2006, Ed Warren considered Spira his demonology protege and entrusted him with continuing his work, which included caring for his occult artifacts after his passing. Those artifacts include Annabelle and her protective case. Echoing the warnings of his predecessors, Spira continues to do the ritual of the binding prayer and always cautions visitors at the Warren's Occult Museum about Annabelle's power. He has been quoted as saying, is it dangerous? Yes, it is the most dangerous object in the museum. When the Annabelle movie came out, you just know douchebaggins had to get in on the action. Of course he did. He amped up the supernatural buzz by talking about his 2017 encounter with the doll and the events that followed. Baggins claimed he was drawn to touch the doll despite dire warnings. Baggins touched the doll, and after he says Annabelle led him to do so because he's a fucking dumbass. <laughs> There's a clip of his encounter with the doll, and you can hear him asking, What do you want, Annabelle? while hovering over the doll during what he describes as an investigation, but really it's just hanging out at the Warren's occult place. Mm-hmm. He says that a figure appeared out of her and went into him. 
and then the following day, a lightning bolt struck a pole next to his car and left a huge gash in its wake. And Baggins claims this lightning strike is because of the interaction with the Raggedy Ann doll. And people called him out on it, saying, like, he's an idiot for touching the doll. Right. And he responded on Facebook with this super long, jerk-faced comment. Um, I edited it down to save some time because it was very Uh long. And I also edited his grammar because it was terrible to read out loud. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, many of you are outraged because I touched Annabelle. So here's my response. While so many viewers think they know exactly what it's like to be in these type of situations, in all due respect, they do not. I am a 100% sensitive. What does that mean? I absorb and sense energies around me at a very high level. Whether it's from living people, residual energy, objects, or from spirits. I've been like this my entire life. I am not a psychic medium. I am a sensitive. And while some people perceive this to be overacting or too dramatic... Well, those people will never be able to relate to what I feel when I'm around spirits. It's a rush, Mm. it's draining, it's exhilarating, and it's terrifying all in one, depending on who or what I am in contact with. It's like he's talking directly to you, Kayla. I know. With that said, (laughs) when it comes to Annabelle, there was a tremendous amount of layered energy infusing this doll, which I believe has caused the dark entity to use it to manipulate and influence the living. I also believe that its past and present owners have put their energies into it as well, good and bad. It sat in an extremely haunted and cursed occult museum for years, absorbing those possessed artifacts' energies as well, while being trapped in a glass case. All of this strengthens the entities even more and more and use it as a host to manipulate the living. During this event, I became affected and started feeling very sad for no reason at which time we received you and us in the EVP reader. This is when I felt whatever is in Annabelle was out and began to manipulate me. Many times I was near her or on the floor in frigid cold in a total trance. While Billy was sweating like he had a 104-degree fever and Aaron was amazed at the communication she was getting through multiple devices. What really disturbed Tony was him finally seeing hardcore evidence surrounding the events as a person, as a witness. So he's speaking for Tony Spira, because why the fuck not? Mm-hmm. I touched Annabelle, but I felt like I had to. Not because it would be a great TV moment, but because of things most of you wouldn't understand. Something had a grip on me, and I had a tremendous amount of sadness through the whole thing except one quick moment of range near the end when Tony took her and left. I'm sorry, Tony and Lorraine Warren, for touching her, but it was not in my direct control at that moment. Touching her, I feel, led to many strange events, and I do believe it was indeed a dangerous thing to do. Ahem. Fucking dumbass. What a stupid post, too. I'm sorry. I'm 100% a sensitive. Like, 100%. I had written this huge, long rant after... But uh-huh. I think actually one of the top comments on that Facebook post from five years ago sums it up very nicely. Whether you believe what Zach does is real or isn't is not the issue. The main thing is he was told not to touch her. Even if you believe in Annabelle and the story behind her, she's a very old doll. Do you go to the museum and touch the exhibits? No, because it's a matter of respect that Zach has shown a lack of since the series started. 
And I just like clapped. I just clapped. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Either way, he was told not to touch her. Exactly. Don't do you it. You don't go don't and touch random things. I'm not going to go touch a mummy. Yeah, like, don't do it. The, the the lighting, like part of the way that the lighting and the air and temperatures and stuff are set up are to keep, you know, things spooky. But another part of it is to help preserve old things. They start to fall yeah. apart otherwise. Back in August of 2020... There was a mild social media freakout revolving around Annabelle. Reports began to surface that Annabelle had escaped from the Warren's Occult Museum when somebody edited her Wikipedia page to say that Annabelle escaped on August 14th at 3 a.m. And lots of people must have been checking that Wikipedia because rumors started to fly fast. Someone was bored during lockdown. Exactly. Uh, Though the rumors quickly spread on social media, the reports were quickly outed as inaccurate. Tony Spira, who heard about the rumor right away, posted a video Mm -hmm. of himself alongside the real-life Annabelle doll in the museum. And he said, I'm here to tell you something, and I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but Annabelle did not escape. Annabelle's alive. Well, I shouldn't say alive. Annabelle's here in all her famous glory. She never left the museum. Remember, I have high-tech security here. If she had left the museum, I'd have instantly known if something happened or somebody broke in to steal her. I have good alarm systems, and the police are good to respond. They respond within a couple minutes, maybe, if that. He then uh, took a jab at all the memes and jokes that had flooded Twitter since the rumor went out. uh, Mm -hmm. Because there were all these things showing pictures of, like, the creepy version of the doll from the movie, uh, like, on the beach. Or wanting to go out or being sick of being stuck inside during quarantine. Or saying the doll took a first clap trip to see her boyfriend Brahms. Which is the doll from the boy movie. Oh. <laughs> I was like, who? <laughs> so, Poor Robert. There's not a lot of haunted lady dolls out there. And he just doesn't. He's just without, without a, a partner. That's so sad. Poor buddy. According to, uh, not everybody buys into the Annabelle hype, because according to an investigation by the New England Skeptical Society, they say that they proved the artifacts in the Warren's Occult Museum were mostly fraudulent, citing doctored photos and exaggerated storytelling, which goes along Mm -hmm. with a lot of those uh, podcasts that you were talking about. Yeah. But for those who still doubt the Annabelle doll's powers, Spira likens it to playing Russian roulette. There might be one bullet in the gun, but would you still pull the trigger or would you just put the gun down and not take the risk? Not I'm touch saying, the doll. Yep. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so it was hard to get an exact answer because different websites told me different things. But it sounds like Annabelle is still residing at the Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. And the New England's Paranormal Research Headquarters is out of there, which is now run by Tony Spira after Lorraine's death in 2019. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can get into the museum right now. Sources say it shut down due to zoning issues in 2019 after Lorraine's death. They mm. hope to reopen it, but I assume that's a lot of red tape to work through. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe they were um, allowed to continue to do it because they had been doing it for so long. Yep. But then when she died, all those, you know, they're like, no, we actually have some rules that we really need to enforce now. Exactly. Um. So even though it's not open, Tony does occasionally host events and you can hire him for lectures like the Warrens used to do. 
but maybe it's better we can't regularly see her as she sits in a glass case, bearing a hand-carved inscription of the Lord's Prayer while a pleasant smile rists on her raggedy and all face under a mop of red hair. Beneath the case, there is a sign that reads, Warning, positively do not open. And that is the story of Annabelle the doll. Yay! (laughs) I made it through the whole Um, thing without coughing horrendously. Yes! Yes, that's good, because you don't have a beverage in there. In that teeny tiny closet. Well, I don't actually know how big the closet is, but... It's pretty small. It looks it looks kind of small, so. <laughs> <sighs> so, on a skeptic scale of para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give Annabelle? Ugh, Kayla, I have a really hard time with Annabelle. Like, I think I'm honestly going to give her a three because I cannot decide one way or the other. That is exactly what I was thinking when I was writing this. Like, it's a really good story, and I'm glad I told it because, honestly, I feel like a lot of my stories have been more lighthearted lately, and I miss the creep factor. Like, the good, like, black-eyed... Anything with a haunted doll is really scary. (laughs) Like, yeah, I miss the good, like, black-eyed children-level creep factor. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There is... We can get into it with more stories later, but there is a lot of controversy around the Warrens. Yeah. So risky. Honestly, yeah, I know. It's like part of me thinks that she is haunted, but then the other part of me is like, "Mm, but the Warrens. Like, I don't know. I think middle of the road is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Keeping it, playing it safe. You know, just exactly. don't don't you don't you pull that trigger on that Russian roulette gun. You just set that gun right down. Exactly. Don't be a Baggins. Don't be a Baggins. Don't be a Baggins. Be a Brittany. I don't know. Don't be a Baggins. <laughs> be a Brittany. I like it. <laughs> what do you got uh, for me this week? So tonight I'm going back to Ireland. But this time I'm taking it easy on myself by choosing a location called Ross Castle. Because I can actually say that. <laughs> Ross. Nice. Uh, and I, I even looked at videos and thinking maybe it was pronounced like, I don't even know. I don't even know how the Irish would say Ross. But alas, uh, I just heard Ross as in like the annoying man from Friends. <laughs> I was anyway, so that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the number one Ross I think of or the grossest Ross I think of I don't know uh (laughs) so Ross Castle as well as the ancient village of Ross that resides near it is situated on the south side of the river Inni as it enters the Lao Shalinen Shalinen I don't know built in the pale which the Pale is the area that extends west from Dublin that was controlled by the English throughout the Middle Ages in Ireland. The castle was kind of a like a reward for service and loyalty to the English crown. Okay. So back in the day, there was this French guy, and his name was Gilbert D. I spelled this out phonetically, and now I don't know what that means. It's N-O-G-E-N-T, and I have... No, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. 
Gilbert D. Noya. No, yeah. Yeah, no. No, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. 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 No, yeah. No, yeah. It gets easier because they change his name after a little bit. So Gilbert D. (laughs) Noya, and he decided to leave his homeland of France to become one of the principal men taking part in William the Conqueror's, would you say 1066? 1066 invasion of England? I would probably say 1066. 1066? Cool. I'm going to go with that then. Okay. So William the First, a.k.a. William the Conqueror, was the illegitimate son of the Normandy Duke, um, and his name was Robert the Devil. And it sounds like he had a lot of feels, William the Conqueror, about being called illegitimate, uh, despite the fact that his dad actually made all of his friends promise before his death that the title of Duke would eventually go to William and no one else. Not everyone was happy about this, however. Um, people kept calling him William the Bastard in response to his Yeah, that was a big illegitimacy. deal back then. But his dad was like, no, 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 I want him to be the Duke. Like, he might be illegitimate, but no one else. Yeah, you hear that, Ned Stark? It could have been fine. Exactly. Exactly. And I think he got a little bit of a complex because of it. So in... No, somebody calls you a bastard your whole life. You just don't... You're, no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> so instead, uh, once the whole Duke thing got straightened out and he, he was indeed, you know, the, the Duke of Normandy, he decided that he was going to become William the Conqueror and he pissed a bunch of people off, first in France with all his conquering, uh, but then he moved on to England and he actually did become the King of England in 1066 with the help of of men like this Gilbert de Noya, Noya. And in exchange, the, de, that family, uh, the, the D guys, uh, <laughs> later be- The de Noyas? De Noyas. Yes, thank you. God damn it. You're welcome. Should have said that first. The de Noyas. Um, later became known as Nugent. Which I was like, no. Like, like Ted? Ted? Yeah. No. Yep. Yep. Nugent. <laughs> um, so that's a lot easier for me to say. So the Nugent Way family. easier. And they received titles and lands in England for the thanks that Gilbert received for helping out William the Conqueror. Okay. So now, Gilbert is sitting pretty with the King of England, who also happens to be in control of the Pale in Ireland. And to celebrate this wonderful alliance, another one of the king's besties, uh, Hugh de Lacey, who had been granted like the greater part of County Meath, which was in the heart of the Pale, well, Hugh gave Gilbert his sister to marry. Because that's a thing that people used to do. Nice. That was nice of him, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully his sister liked Gilbert. Probably not. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, With her hand in marriage, Gilbert was also given a dowry. And part of that contained the title of the Baron of Delvin. So Gilbert Nugent is now the Baron of Delvin. And he is so grateful to William the Conqueror. Um, According to the Ross Castle's official website, quote, The Nugents were always king's men, realizing full well on whose goodwill and strong arm their lands and titles rested. They did their utmost to maintain and, where possible, expand their foothold in the new colony. 
And part of this included these strong fortifications for defense against the local Irish folk. So the English came, they stole the land, as as white Englishmen are, are wont to do, from the local Irish yes. folk. Um, and then once they were there, the king sent all his buddies over, like Gilbert, and then he's like, okay, go build a bunch of, like, fortified locations and then the Irish are not going to be able to take the land back. Awesome. Man. Awesome. Just no wonder nobody likes them. I know. And for centuries, this region was a kind of battleground between the Anglo-Saxon conquerors from the east and the Celtic Irish from the north and west. Because beyond the pale was where the former occupants of the region like reigned. And the Irish chieftains and their clans, so talking about the O'Reillys, the McCabe's, the O'Neill's, and the McCormick's. So they were just... Oh, 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 O'Reillys. Auto parts. parts. So (laughs) the O's in the mix were like just on the edge of the pale. Eventually, some 500 years or so after Gilbert, um, the 12th Baron of Delvin, Richard Nugent, finally began to build such a structure. So I don't know what his folks were doing, the Nugents were doing prior to 500 years later. Um, Maybe they were living with the DeLacy's. I mean, they did eventually, you know, they stole one of their women, got the sweet title. Maybe they were living with them. But apparently they didn't have like a castle of their own until this Richard Nugent came along. But it's 1533, and Richard Nugent was ready to build himself a stronghold, which would eventually become known as Ross Castle. Feels like a weird thing to name the castle. Yes. Ross and Ted Nugent. What is going on with this story? Okay, so he completed the tower, the, the main like castle part of the castle, four years later in 1537. And it was actually in a really good position. Like Maybe it took 500 years to find the perfect place because it was built just on the edge of the pale on top of a steep hill overlooking the territory of the O'Reilly clan. So if the O'Reilly clan wanted to attack, they were like, no, I see you from like really far away. I'm really uh, high up on this steep hill. I see you. Uh-huh. Uh, no, no, no. Go back. Per the castle's website, quote, workmen in the nearby Ross Quarry took several years to cut the stone and erect a formidable tower of the castle. Uh, it would be surrounded by the walled living quarters as well as the defensive buildings, unquote. And actually, the current entrance gate into the inner yard is the original gate, having survived centuries of use. All right. The Ross stonemasons were kind of a big deal. Quality work. Yeah, they... Mint. 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 Fucking, fucking mint. Fucking mint, someone might say. And eventually, the Great Hall and additional extensions were added by Richard's grandson, the 13th Baron of Delvin. And for years, the castle was a guard against the Celtic Irish in the region. Though, in the decades following Richard Nugent, the 12th Baron of Delvin, the Nugents, uh, let's say, they began to fraternize with the locals. Ha-cha-cha. And the name O'Reilly began popping up in that family tree. Oh, 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 
O'Reilly's Auto Parts. I thought you were at least going to change it to something like, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, nope. O'Reilly's. You can't change O'Reilly's <laughs> Auto Parts. It just is. Just okay? is. Okay. okay. It just is. So this episode sponsored by O'Reilly's Auto Parts. I wish. Wait, do they still exist? Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. So the Castle of Ross really hit its peak of fame in the summer of 1644 when Miles O'Reilly, a.k.a. The Slasher, spent the night there prior to the Battle of Finia. You probably couldn't hear that. I said prior to the Battle of Finia, and then Evie went, like nah, <laughs> no, I couldn't. I couldn't hear that. I was like, I was like, why is she looking at me like that? I don't know what I. What am I supposed to react to? Is Finia a a reference to something? I don't know. No, it's just my cat coming in and like doubting my my research. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, you did not look that up right. You did not. You know nothing about the Battle of Finia from 1644. Evie's doing her thesis. <laughs> Oh, my cat's going to school me on <laughs> Irish history. Considered by some to be the brave heart of Ireland, Miles O'Reilly lost his life during the battle defending Ireland against the English and Scottish army. Which might not sound like that that big of a deal. Like it was mm-hmm. is a guy who happened to die in war. But there's lots of them, yeah. Yeah, he was kind of a big deal. Um, okay. So this battle happened in 1644, but the tale of his bravery and heroism lived on through the centuries, culminating in a memorial Celtic cross being unveiled by the Lord Mayor of Dublin in 1913. And on the cross, you have the story of Miles O'Reilly. I assume it's something pretty badass with a name like the Slasher. It kind of has to be. So, so on this cross it says, The slasher had with him 100 horse, while the enemy was 1,000 strong. They fought them the whole day long until his followers were all nearly slain. Finally, he was encountered by a gigantic Scotsman who thrust the point of his sword through the slasher's cheek. The latter closed his jaw on the blade and held it as if it was an iron vice while he slew his antagonist, cutting him through the steel helmet down to his chin with one blow, both falling apart. At that moment, reinforcements arrived from Grenard, and the bridge was saved. A further inscription reads, In memory of the slasher, who fell on the bridge of Finia while defending against the English and Scottish forces under General Monroe on the 5th of August, 1646. The Slasher. God damn, that's a good nickname. So, a recap of what that says. This gigantic Scotsman stabbed the Slasher through his cheek. And then the Slasher bit down on his sword like a metal vice. And then while like the Scotsman was trying to get his sword back out of the Slasher's mouth, because he's bitten down on it, after it went through his cheek... Then the slasher brought down his blade and it went through the guy's steel helmet down to his chin in one blow and then his head just kind of fell apart. (laughs) Brutal. Fucking brutal. 
And in response to Miles O'Reilly and his association with Ross Castle, the English then attacked the castle, reducing it, like, basically to just ruins. Because it used to have been, like, an English ally, but then they mingled with the O'Reilly clan, and now they're like, fuck you guys, I'm destroying your castle, but not your front gate. Because those Masons did a really good job with that one. (laughs) Later descendants of the O'Reillys and the Nugents rebuilt the tower and some of the outbuildings. In 1864, Anna Maria O'Reilly installed a very large plaque commemorating her heroic ancestor in the tower hall. So they was she before the mayor the Lord Mayor of Dublin in nineteen thirteen made this big deal about the slasher. Um Anna Maria O'Reilly installed this on their, you know, their hometown castle. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. And 100 years after that, Sir David Nugent rebuilt the entire compound as a family estate in its current state. And at that time, modern conveniences were added to the building complex. And now the Ross Castle is a bed and breakfast. Because why not? I mean, honestly, they have so many different castles in these areas that they probably are running out of things to do with them. So somebody was like, okay, this one, uh, this one will be a museum. Um, this one will be a B and B. This one will be an O'Reilly's auto parts. <laughs> this point, they're just like, I don't, I don't care. It's, it, it's a building. It's already built. Let's just go with it. Yeah, it's fine. It's there. Let's do something with it, I guess. Or we'll just leave it there to be ruined. Exactly. That's cool too. Tourists love that shit. Americans eat that shit up. It's just broken, and they're like, let's go take pictures. <laughs> so at this, this B&B, um, you can book rooms in the main castle, the castle cottage, the T-Rose cottage, and the quarry house. The main castle has seven bedrooms and many common areas that can accommodate up to 17 guests. Or you can just book the whole lot of them and have a super fun party of 31. Hell Yeah. But you might end up sharing your space with a ghost or two. Always want that. Always. I know. I know. I wonder if Anne Marie's been here. This sounds like a place Anne Marie might have gone. Yeah, but I also think that I saw when I was doing research that there are like 3,000 castles in Ireland. So it would take True. a really long time just to hit them all up. Hence why some of them are auto parts stores. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, cut down on that tourist thing we're serving the locals with these (laughs) o'reilly auto parts so these ghosts it sounds like they are mostly due to the consequences of mr richard nugent's actions so he was the 12th baron of delvin because while some folks might remember him as the nugent who built ross castle uh, which might be seen as like a positive thing Mm-hmm. Others remember him as being kind of a dick. <laughs> Do you get it? His name is yeah. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. I saw what you were doing there. Yeah. Yeah. Picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> See, <laughs> he was known for not being very nice. In fact, the locals would often refer to him as the Black Baron, and he was known for his ill temper and mean streak. One of the most famous stories of him just taking it too far, Richard, uh, was when one day a townswoman baked a loaf of bread. 
And in classic Looney Tune fashion, she put the loaf on the windowsill to cool. Then along comes a dog who was like, damn, that bread smells good. So he grabbed the bread and skedaddled out of there. The woman yelled, thief, thief. And it scared the dog so much that the dog dropped the bread and then ran away. Mm -hmm. Now, while all of this is happening, a beggar comes strolling into town. He is tired from his travel, so he pops a squat under a tree and he's just chilling, minding his own business. However, this Richard Nugent hears that some bread was stolen while out on a hunt with some of his buddies, and he starts to get real worked up about the lawlessness that is happening in his very own realm. And so he comes across this man sitting casually under this tree, again, minding his own business, looking a little worse for wear, mind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he assumes that this man must be the bread thief. Oh, no. So he starts to interrogate him, to which the beggar said he doesn't know anything about any bread thievery. And Richard was like, okay, you're lying to me, and I know you're lying, and I am mad that you are blatantly lying to my face. And he orders his men to build a gallows right then and there, and then they hang to the beggar. Oh, my God. And the townsfolk, knowing that this is not the man who stole the bread, it wasn't a man at all, it was a dog, ended up planting a cross across from where the gallows stood, which is still there. Where people can walk past it and be like, fuck you, Richard Nugent, you dick. So Richard, not a nice guy. Um, And that's just one story. I'm not going to go into more. You can pretty much get from that story that he, he wasn't great. Oh, yeah, I, I get what's happening there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Again, picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> but Richard didn't live alone in the Ross Castle. He actually had a daughter, and her name was Sabina. And although she suffered from ailing health much of her life, she grew up into this beautiful young woman. And according to the Ross Castle website, quote, she spent much of her youth at the shores of the Lafshillin near Ross, uh, in the charming scenery of the Irish countryside. Although the daughter of an English lord, extended walks brought her into contact with the local Irish. She was pleasant and well-liked by the village folk, unlike her dad. Uh, Commonly, she would have a governess accompanying her, but now and then she managed to get away without being watched. Feels very Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Yeah, yeah. On one of these occasions, she was walking down the bridge across from the Inny, which formed the border of her father's domain. Down there, she met some handsome young man with whom she started chatting. His name was Orwen, and he was the son of the O'Reilly chieftain. Time suddenly flew, and upon parting, they promised to meet again. More and more often, they would meet in secrecy since it was unprecedented for the daughter of an English lord to visit the son of an Irish chieftain, and they soon fell deeply in love with one another. Cute. Time passed, and the longer they waited, the more the realization grew that they could never be together. They talked about getting married and spending their lives together, but their families were foes, waging war on one another time and time again. This is why you got to cut off toxic family members. Fuck them. Yeah. 
chosen marry family. Marry that sweet. For marry that sweet boy. Fuck your family. Yeah. Especially your dad, who just hangs random peasants. Yeah. No. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. So, Orwin and Sabine grew desperate. Uh, their commitment to each other was stronger than their family quarrels and the politics their lives were embroiled in. Unquote. So they had no hope in sight of finding happiness together, so they decided to elope. They met one night, boarded a boat, and made their way across the lake. However, once they reached a good way out, a storm hit. And although they tried to get back to shore, a gale and a sudden swell caught the boat and overturned it. Oh, no. Sabine survived, though not before remaining unconscious for three days before waking up. But Orwin, however, did not. His body was eventually retrieved from the lake, proving to Sabine that her lover was, in fact, gone forever. So sad. So sad. So heartbroken by the loss of Orwin, she locked herself in the tower, refusing to eat or drink until she finally fell into a deep sleep, never to wake again. That is hella depressing. Yeah, it is. I agree. To this day, Sabim haunts the castle's walls. Visitors and guests most uh, visitors and guests make frequent encounters with her spirit, still in search of her lover and restless until the day that she will be reunited with him. Oh. Many people believe that her sorrow and inability to find peace is a kind of payback for her father's cruelty. And because of this, the Black Baron is also said to roam the halls, grieving the loss of his only daughter, who he is also unable to find. He should be roaming and suffering throughout his entire life. She shouldn't have to. No, she shouldn't have to. I agree. I fully agree. And if if this really is some sort of payback for her father's cruelty, like that's not that's not fair. People love her. Fair. It's Stupid. not fair. She just wanted to have a happy life with the the chieftain's son guy. Yeah, Orwin. What a little cutie patootie and then he died in a freak storm. Like how does that even happen? Not fair. So, according to the Irish Times, stories of sightings among guests abound. One American psychic actually started sobbing the moment that she was shown Sabine's room because her presence there was so strong. Another guest disappeared one morning after being spooked by a ghost, most likely the Black Baron, who, quote-unquote, made love to me last night, as she wrote in the hotel guest book, which, yikes, no, not great. Oh, shit, what's the word for that? Spectrophilia. Gross. And made made love to me is a very odd way to put that. It sounds consensual when you say it like that. Yeah. She obviously didn't know about the bread thing. <laughs> I like that that's your takeaway. Like, she didn't know about the bread thing or she would have never let that ghost fuck her. Exactly. <laughs> I'm saying. I'm saying. Um. Uh, Folks have reported being scratched, some to the point of drawing blood, hearing the voice of a child or young woman, and of catching ghostly apparitions in photos. People have claimed to hear music without a source, like a harpsichord or a penny whistle, as well as seeing orbs, unexplained blue lights, bumps and bangs, and feeling the unseen hands touching their hair. Ew. All the classic Conti signs. 
Exactly. There are also reports of disembodied footsteps traveling up and down the stairs, seeing shadowy figures darting around. And during paranormal investigations, folks have claimed to catch EVPs. Uh, During one of these, uh, someone caught the word hello. During another, they caught the word murder or possibly mother or possibly marble. I feel like it's more likely to be one of the first two. Like, I don't know why marble would be a thing. (laughs) I know. I think that they were American and that, like, their accent just really threw off the translation of (laughs) what they were saying. They're like, murder? Marble? You want to play marbles? You want to play a game of marbles to the death? (laughs) Uh. There are theories that there are even more ghosts than just Sabim and Richard in the castle, which I guess would make some sense since it's like 500 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also might explain some of the different activity that doesn't necessarily seem to be, doesn't fit to be attributed to them. Either way, it has five stars out of 201 reviews on TripAdvisor. So that's insanity. It's a, it's a, it's a fun stay. And that's my story of, of Ross Castle. Woo. That's a very classic haunting, like down to the tragic tale behind it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, cartoonish imagery, though, I must say. I could see that. I could see that. On a skeptic scale, I'm going to give it a four. Nice. Nice. Just because I think it, I think it's haunted. Uh-huh. But I, I don't, you know, I just, it almost seems, like you were saying cartoon imagery, it almost seems too, too mm-hmm. haunted good to be true. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go four. I'm going four. I think I'm going to do a 3.5. Okay. Um, I, I kind of assume it's haunted, but I don't know. I don't know why a ghost would say marble. They want to play a game of marbles to the death. With their mom. (laughs) It's the only way to make it make sense. Mom, I'm going to murder you with marbles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my jeez. Okay. Uh, Oh, my jeez. Oh, my jeez. All right. If you have a paranormal story you'd like to share with us, an experience of some kind, anything you'd like to send, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page, or reach out to us through the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you're the most comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, at Left of Skeptic, and Facebook, at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us here it was nice to have something to do while we're feeling this Joining way. Joining us here. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just, uh, I know. you know. I know. Girl, I feel it. I feel it. All right. We love you all and appreciate you very much. Oh, we do. We appreciate you so much. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay. okay. Bye.
Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye! Thank you.